I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there, listener. You're hearing the archive presentation in six parts of our classic episode covering the work, life, and strange experiences of famed sci-fi author Philip K. Dick. This episode also covers associated topics like Christian Gnosticism, physicalist and dualist views of consciousness, the thousands of pages of philosophical ramblings that Dick wrote in the last years of his life, and how in many ways, thanks to his visionary fiction, we are all living in the reality that PKD made. We're dropping one part into our feed for each of the next six weeks. If you'd prefer to hear all of this in one big MP3, it's available as episode 18 in the show feed but we know that some of you out there prefer our modern, digestible chunks approach to show delivery digestible chunks approach to show delivery over our original huge topics and multi-hour marathons approach, so this is an opportunity to check out some of the older stuff in short doses while we work up brand new stuff. You'll start hearing those new episodes in January of 2024, and we hope in the meantime these will tide you over. You can reach us at theparanoidstrain.com, Email theparanoidstrain at gmail.com. Join our friendly group at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash theparanoidstrain. And if you're so inclined, you can support us at patreon.com forward slash theparanoidstrain. And now, please relax as our pink light penetrates your brain. Don't worry, that analogy will make sense after you listen. Jesuit, out. Next subject. Jesuit, Fearful, Engineer, Podcast Generation, File Section, New Employee, 18th Episode. Come in. Sit down. Care if I talk? I'm kind of nervous when I take tests. Plus, I have this cyclical condition that forces me to create a conspiracy theory show every two months and then ramble on about it for sometimes two or three hours at a stretch. I guess it all started back in my childhood. Just please don't move. Sorry. I already had an IQ test this year. I don't think I've ever had one of these. Reaction time is a factor in this, so please pay attention. Now, answer just as quickly as you can. Sure. I want to talk to you about... Redeeming my straw man. Redeeming your straw man? Why, that's one of those very silly ideas promulgated by the Sovereign Citizens Movement. What? We covered it in episode 5. Good show? Yeah, I think it came out great. Do you know sovereign citizen tax beliefs are one of the things that ended up sending Wesley Snipes to jail? And is this part of the test? No, just warming up, that's all. I mean, it was an early show, so it was a little less pretentious. It's not some fancy recreation of a legendary sci-fi movie opening scene or anything. You're in the desert, walking along in the sand, when all of a sudden... Is this the test now? Yes, you're in the desert, walking along the sand, when all of a sudden... What one? What? What desert? Doesn't make any difference what desert. It's completely hypothetical. But how come I'd be there? Maybe you're fed up. Maybe you want to talk about something larger than just the topic of conspiracy theories for once. Who knows? 
you look over the horizon and you see a paranoid, visionary science fiction author fearful. He's stumbling toward you. Which paranoiac, visionary sci-fi author is that? You know what horse lover fat is? Of course. It's the alternate ego assumed by Philip K. Dick in his masterpiece, Phalus, in which the author tries to reconcile an ecstatic vision that redefined his life permanently with his own creeping suspicion that maybe this event was nothing but a delusion. Same thing. Never seen a horse lover fat, but I understand what you mean. You push Philip K. Dick down on his back, fearful. You make these questions up, Mr. Interviewer, or they write them down for you. PKD lays on his back, fearful, addled by years of drug use and latent mental illness, trying desperately to reach for his typewriter. But he can't, not without your help. But you're not helping. What do you mean I'm not helping? I mean you're not helping. Why is that, fearful? They're just questions, fearful. In answer to your query, they're written down for me. It's a test designed to provoke podcasters to address the vast and still expanding legacy of one of the most important thinkers on the meaning of human existence as increasingly mediated by technology and our realizations that the idea of reality is fundamentally slippery. Shall we continue? Describe in single words only the good things that come into your mind about Dana Unicorn? Dana Unicorn? Yeah. Let me tell you about Dana Unicorn. Sorry about that, but she's a real nice lady, and I didn't care for your tone. Holy shit, this is kind of a mess. While I clean up, we might as well discuss the unique, singular, frequently insane world created by Philip K. Dick in his lifelong quest to explain the reality that fascinated, troubled, and frightened him. And, while we're at it, how that quest has impacted so many subsequent movies, books, and ideas you love to this day. Welcome back to The Paranoid Strain. Everyone else, you were born into a black iron prison that you can't smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. Unfortunately, no one can be told what Valis is. You have to see it for yourself. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill, the story ends. You go back to debunking conspiracy theories, and you believe whatever you want to believe. You take the pink pill, you meet Valis, and you learn why it is, exactly, that the Empire never ended. Pink pill it is. Wait, who are you? Why are we talking about this? And why does this pink pill say Pepto-Bismol in tiny little letters? Uh, I gotta go. God damn it, we're doing two of these weirdo episodes in a row? Yeah. 
As much ground as we covered in our last episode, which considered how really smart people have tried and mostly failed to understand reality at its most basic level since humans started developing organized methods of thinking, there's still a few other major related topics we want to get to, and they all converge rather neatly in the person of Philip Kindred Dick. At his death in 1982, he was an obscure slinger of dozens of pulp science fiction novels, but now he's seen as one of the most important, influential thinkers on the subject of what exactly it means to be human in an often dehumanizing, technologically advancing, increasingly unreal-seeming modern world. But before we get to that, of course, we have to welcome in the newbies. Hey, new folks, you've picked a weird episode as your introduction to the show. Since while we're going to touch on a few conspiracies in this one, that's usually our main focus. Every two months, we send out a lovingly handcrafted, locally sourced, artisanal MP3 file, chock full of information to help you understand why your Martinizer, your underwear inspector, and especially that one rogue cop will stop at nothing to avenge his partner's death and bring Salazar's operation down permanently. Why they all believe such dumbfuck conspiracy theories. I'm your host, Fearful Jesuit, a man who's currently struggling to come up with a new pseudonym for fiancé Jesuit. Personally, I'm leaning towards the soon-to-be Mrs. Jesuit. I know I've kind of derailed what we hope is your favorite anti-conspiracy theory podcast into Uncharted Waters, last episode, and obviously in this one, but we hope you'll find the detour worth it in the end. As we noted moments ago, this is the second of a two-part series. The first, which you're welcome to skip back and check out, is concerned with the unquestionable fact that, however much we here at The Strain like to uphold the concept of a shared reality against which to judge the claims of conspiracy theorists, neither philosophers nor scientists have ever managed to pin down exactly what we mean when we say reality in the first place. This time, we're going to dig into the ways that one incredibly talented, visionary writer tried to deal with the shifting sands of that reality and how his extensive reading and unique personal experiences led him to craft evocative, prophetic worlds in which his characters struggled mightily to retain their humanity and to comprehend the world that continually, inexplicably, reformed itself around them. The story of Philip K. Dick is the tale of a man whose life was centered around the problem of remaining sane within an increasingly unimaginable world. Incidentally, that remaining sane, he wasn't always so successful with that. In addition to the life and legacy of PKD, we'll also explore the work of some other creative super geniuses who've tried to deal with these same issues. And to complement our explorations of philosophy and science last time, we'll dive into the ways that neuroscientists and other researchers are exploring the mysteries of the most complex known mechanism in the universe. The three pounds of jelly in your skull. We'll also see how PKD's ideas dovetailed with an early form of Christianity that, while heretical these days, was in the 2nd century CE a real contender for coming to dominate the Christian worldview. And it's vastly different than any version of that religion you might previously have been familiar with. Point being, once we're finished, we'll have said everything we have to say about how weird reality is, as well as how tough it can be to nail down what consciousness or even the idea of the self is, then we can get back to defending all of that slippery, hard-to-pin-down stuff against the conspiracy yahoos. Thank God. I like it better when the conspiracists are the ones saying all the weird shit. Okay, table set. Let's start off by examining the strange, complicated life of Philip K. Dick. Thank you. 
Born in 1928, PKD came of age in the 1950s, which you may be familiar with as the decade that many of our most experienced, politically engaged... Dana, help me out. Senior citizens who were mad as hell that modern culture seems to have moved on without them and yell a lot about it on Facebook? The folks who really hate the phrase, OK, Boomer? Yeah, that about nails it. The 50s were the last decade where the world made sense for a certain dwindling yet still highly vocal demographic. Of white people. Yeah, see, the standard cultural reference point for our national discussions pits the calm, placid, prosperous, fat and happy black and white days of the 50s... against the brash, conflict-and-murder-ridden, society-dividing Technicolor 60s. Now, it's worth noting that our septuagenarian and above contingent actually came of age in the 60s, and that many were deeply involved in fomenting or supporting the societal shifts that led directly to that decade's controversial reputation. But as time has progressed, many of those same cultural revolutionaries have decided that whole thing was a real mistake, and they now yearn for the time when they rode their bicycles, helmetless through placid, safe streets, playing cards rat-a-tatting in the spokes, Davy Crockett coonskin caps on their heads, mom at home in the kitchen, dad driving back from the office in a suit and hat, all is right and orderly with the world. A man of the previous generation, though, our Phil reached his early 20s during the 50s, the Eisenhower era when the civil rights movement was only beginning to roil the conscience of middle America and where paroxysms of enforced patriotism like the McCarthy hearings made him feel as an artist, a lefty, and a born weirdo. Kind of like, as another author's famous science fiction novel would title it, A Stranger in a Strange Land. Phil seems to have been born with a nervous, perhaps a paranoid tendency, in his personality. This would, during the course of his life, be exacerbated by any number of factors, including heavy amphetamine use, poverty, and eventually... The Valus Incident, which will become incredibly important in his later years, and for that matter, in this episode. But it didn't help that so many things that happened around him seemed almost tailor-made to stoke his paranoia. For example, in 1953 or 54, as narrated in the PKD biography Divine Invasions by Lawrence Sutton, the FBI visited young Phil and his wife Cleo. Cleo being, we might want to note here, the first of five wives he married and divorced throughout his lifetime often amid mutual accusations of abuse. Phil wasn't the kind of guy you'd want to go to for advice on keeping a relationship on track. Anyway, these FBI visits were not all that extraordinary for the time. The couple were known to have left-wing leanings, they were living in Berkeley, which is the center of revolutionary sentiment in the Golden State, and they were friends with all sorts of, to use an unfortunate phrase from the period, commie simps. That is, communist sympathizers. In addition to building the agency's files on people with questionable political leanings to keep J. Edgar off their backs, the agents also kind of became friends with Phil and Cleo. One of them even taught Phil to drive. There was an ulterior motive to their visits, of course. The agents once offered an all-expenses-paid trip to Mexico if the couple would spy on local students while there. Phil and Cleo turned this offer down, and that was apparently that. Sutton reports, decades later, that Cleo, laughing, recalled that the agents probably could see that we were a couple of dips and didn't want much to do with us. But whether he felt this way at the time or not, these visits would eventually come to have a disproportionate impact on Phil's outlook, again Sutton. From 1964 on, he frequently believed himself to be under FBI or other agency surveillance. The Berkeley Red Squad. That's how he eventually referred to those aforementioned, seemingly mostly harmless FBI men. 
provided a vivid foundation for that belief, which caused him great anxiety. Phil later claimed that the agents had asked him to spy on Cleo. Cleo regards this claim as highly unlikely. This is a nice jumping off point for talking about PKD's attitude toward the world around him. He was kind of a born magical thinker, always imagining forces at play behind the world's surface. You'll recognize this is the same attitude that in most of the people we study eventually results in an unmovable insistence on one conspiracy theory or another as the explanation for the entire reason the world is the way it is. What makes Phil so fascinating, and his work so impactful, is that he was never, ever content to accept any scheme, his or anyone else's, as the final, unquestionable, forever and ever explanation for the reality he found himself in. In his personal life, this led to a constant state of turmoil. In his fiction, though, it produced some of the most compelling ideas ever put in print. Looking at Dix... Okay, stop it. We get it. The guy's last name is Dick. Hilarious. But get over it, because you're not going to be able to handle it when we have to talk about horse lover fat. Looking at his body of work, it can be difficult to know where to start. Science fiction is a genre known for the heroic number of titles produced by its most prolific practitioners. Even in that company, though, Dick's output is a sight to behold. Over 30 years, he wrote 44 novels and 120 or so short stories. How did he accomplish this impressive feat? Well... A heroic consumption of amphetamines probably helped. A 2007 retrospective by Charles McGrath notes that he was known, at the height of his drug use, to pop as many as a thousand pills per week. Now, that level of abuse has been disputed, but it's clear the man worked like a demon, had a series of contentious and more or less abusive marriages, published a metric fuckton of books, and until the very end of his life could barely make ends meet. The sheer scope of his work makes it hard to summarize his interests. It wasn't all SF. He actually published a number of realistic novels that were focused on life in mid-century California. But a few themes are obvious. The first, unlike many sci-fi writers, Dick doesn't care about the mechanics of future technology. His books aren't filled with loving breakdowns of how some hyperspatial superspeed warp drive is actually functioning. If his characters need to reach distant planets, he'll make sure the technology exists to let them do so. He'll give it a goofy name and then move on. Second, the reason he wrote in the genre, besides the fact that it let him publish at a blistering pace since SF fans are always hungry for new content, was that it let him hypothesize what might happen to everyday human beings who were facing new challenges from the rapid advance of science and technology. Inevitably, for PKD, these questions boiled down to the essential nature of the self, reality, human consciousness, and God, whatever that meant. The page-by-page, line-by-line experience of reading Philip K. Dick is hardly transcendent. An article on themillions.com kindly isolated and analyzed one of the worst of the worst. A sex scene we'll quote here. She leapt, galvanized, as if lost to the shock of a formal experiment. His pale, dignified, unclothed procession become a tall and very thin greenless nervous system of a frog, probed to life by outside means. Victim of a current not her own, but not protested in any way. Uh, <clears throat> Jasper, what the fuck did I just read? Well, as the article's author, Michael H. Rowe, notes, um, Philip Dick just compared a woman experiencing orgasm to an electrified frog. And she's also her lover's possession, albeit a dignified and greenless possession. Look, no one's going to confuse him with Jimmy Joyce. But it's not the sentences or the individual scenes that make his book so powerful and influential. It's the ideas and the way that he conveys the strange, dislocating experience of being a modern human. 
Speaking of Joyce, if you're wondering why fearful I got my pseudonym from Ulysses Jesuit loves PKD so much, check out this quote from his novel, The Divine Invasion, in which a character expresses an idea that's clearly Dick's own as follows. Someday, I'm going to prove that Finnegan's Wake is an information pool based on computer memory systems that didn't exist until a century after James Joyce's era. That Joyce was plugged into a cosmic consciousness from which he derived the inspiration for his entire corpus of work. I'll be famous forever. Yeah, okay. I love authors who love other authors I love so much that they create conspiracy theories about those authors that I love. So I'm predictable. Sue me. In spite of the fact that he often wrote both awkwardly and super fast, his most perceptive contemporary peers and critics noticed there was something unique and important about him. Take, for example, Stanislaw Lem. He wrote, among many other incredible books, Solaris, which has been turned into one languorous Tarkovsky film and one more focused Soderbergh film, each in its own way quite good. Lem was also a man of very strong opinions, as he expressed in his broadside of a 1973 essay called Science Fiction, A Hopeless Case with Exceptions. It's a searing critique of the vapidity of the genre, catty, dismissive fun to read even now, but it's most often remembered for the single exception he made to the hopeless case of science fiction, which was, as you might expect, Philip K. Dick. Not that Lem was letting Phil off lightly for his frequent literary sins. To quote the essay, It cannot be maintained that Dick has evaded all the traps set for him. He has more defeats than victories in his work, but the latter determine his rank as an author. For a while, these kinds of positive opinions of PKD's books were few and far between. During the bulk of his career, he was known, if at all, as one of a million other sci-fi hacks a dime a dozen. Around the turn of the 1980s, though, that all began to change. First, a bunch of academics started noticing that he had a lot to say about technology and humans and reality and consciousness and started teaching him in their various classes. But even more importantly, director Ridley Scott, fresh off the triumph of Alien, decided to very loosely adapt Dick's novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep into the stone-cold classic film Blade Runner. This was not, in fact, the first time that someone wanted to bring the author's vision to the screen, we might add. John Lennon, presumably eager to emulate the success of fellow Beatle George Harrison's handmade films, wanted to get into the biz, as they say, with an adaptation of Dick's truly hallucinatory and arguably unfilmable Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch, coincidentally Jesuit's favorite PKD novel. On the one hand, I'm really sorry I missed out on seeing that. On the other hand, Yoko Ono has yet to appear in a PKD adaptation. So you take the bad with the good. Anywho, Phil was able to see a rough effects cut of Blade Runner months before it was released, and was reportedly stunned by how well the production captured the vision of future Los Angeles that was in his mind when he wrote the novel. Unfortunately, he was never able to see the finished film, as he died in March of 82, months before it was released.
In the decades since, of course, PKD's corpus has been strip-mined for influence and direct adaptation by a nearly uncountable number of projects across a variety of media. We'll cover some of the highlights later in this episode, but for now it makes sense to focus on one major part of the man's life we deliberately skipped over in our capsule biography. That's the time period Dick himself would refer to throughout his remaining years as 2374, which doesn't represent a single date, i.e. February 3rd. Or March 2nd for our date format challenge non-American listeners. Wait, hey, wait a minute, bucko. I'm one of those day, month, year people. Our version makes more sense. Show some respect. Oh, really? It makes more sense to put the day first? Then why do we say the date out loud as, for example, June 16th, 1904? We don't. We say 16th June, 1904. What the fuck is wrong with you people? Anyway, it's actually shorthand for a date range indicating February and March of 1974, when Phil's already odd life got kicked up to a completely new level. By the way, to give me a bit of break from extensive quoting, Jesuit has kindly alternated clips from various PKD audiobooks with my readings throughout the rest of this episode. So, like, don't freak out when somebody else reads something. Dana's still here. It's all gonna be okay. The scene that initiated these events is almost astonishingly banal, as Dick himself would later narrate, In February, I had major oral surgery and was home recovering, still under the influence of the sodium pentothal and in severe pain. Tessa. That is his then-wife. And here comes one of them audiobook quotes Dana mentioned. Tessa phoned the oral surgeon, and he phoned a pharmacy to send out a painkiller. The doorbell rang, and I went, and there stood this girl, with black, black hair and large eyes, very lovely and intense. I stood staring at her, amazed, also confused, thinking I'd never seen such a beautiful girl. And why was she standing there? She handed me the package of medication, and I tried to think what to say to her. I noticed then a fascinating gold necklace around her neck, and I said, What is that? It certainly is beautiful. Just, you see, to find something to say to hold her there. The girl indicated the major figure in it, which was a fish. This is a sign used by the early Christians, she said, and then departed. Wait... Was that it? That was a big event? No, that was just the beginning. The way Phil saw it, the visit by that girl was the first encounter of the most significant thing he'd ever experienced. It's tough to summarize the events and impacts concisely, and as we'll see later, Dick would return to and reanalyze this topic endlessly, but here are some highlights. He experienced himself as being pierced by a pink light. Yeah, a beam of pink light is consistently how he explained what he thought of as his mind suddenly being put in contact with another, much greater consciousness. That I'm in direct mind-to-mind touch with extraterrestrial intelligence systems has been obvious to me for some time, but what this means is not in any way obvious. And in the excellent novel he titled after the name he gave to this phenomenon, Valus, or Vast Active Living Intelligence System, The narrator, whose name is Philip K. Dick, and who's hearing this experience described by a different character, named Horselover Fat, We know it's complicated. We'll explain later. Anyway, narrator Philip K. Dick described the event thus. God, he told us, had fired a beam of pink light directly at him. At his head, his eyes. He had been temporarily blinded, and his head had ached for days. It was easy, he said, to describe the beam of pink light. It's exactly what you get as a phosphine afterimage when a flash bulb has gone off in your face. Fat was spiritually haunted by that color. Sometimes it showed up on a TV screen. He lived for that light, that one particular color. 
But of course, the pink light was just the beginning. He also experienced a variety of other audio and visual phenomena, which you can think of as communication or hallucination depending on your perspective, but that he talked about this way. Soon thereafter, the dazzling shower of colored graphics descended over me in the night. Dick often expounded on this singular moment, without being on any mind-expanding drugs. One night I found myself flooded with colored graphics, which resembled the non-objective paintings of Kandinsky and Clay, thousands of them one after the other, so fast as to resemble flash cut used in movie work. This went on for eight hours. Each picture was balanced, had excellent harmony, and possessed idiomatic style, that of a well-known non-objective artist. I could not account for what I was seeing. This took place in the dark and was evidently phosphine activity within my eyes, but the source of the stimulation of the phosphines was an enigma to me at the time. But I was certain that those tens of thousands of lovely, balanced, quite professional and aesthetic harmonious graphics could not be originating within my own mind or brain. I have no facility with graphics, and besides, there were too many of them. Even Picasso, whose style predominated for over an hour, never actually painted so many. Okay. His brain was suffused for hours with a series of abstract art images. Weird. But again, not enough to change the person's whole mindset. No, but the weirdness continues. Again, quoting Sutton in his biography, Divine Invasions. It was in this weakened condition in late summer that Phil was zapped by the pink light, information that Christopher suffered from a potentially fatal inguinal hernia. This diagnosis was confirmed by the physician and corrective surgery was performed in October. Again, Dick in Valus. The cardinal point which Fat had made to us regarding his experience with the pink beam, which had injured and blinded him, was this. He claimed that instantly, as soon as the beam struck him, he knew things he had never known. He knew specifically that his five-year-old son had an undiagnosed birth defect, and he knew what that birth defect consisted of, down to the anatomical details. Down, in fact, to the medical specifics to relate to the doctor. Interesting. But that's just crazy talk, right? Yeah, except this turned out to be true. His son Christopher was indeed treated with surgery for an inguinal hernia that could have proved to be life-threatening and which was previously undiagnosed. This event formed part of Dick's identification of himself as able to predictively experience the future on occasion. He was, to use his own formulation, a precog, which you may remember as the ability displayed by the weird people sitting in the white pool in Minority Report which is yet another important silver screen PKD adaptation. I'm sure you all understand the legalistic drawback to pre-crime methodology. Here we go again. Look, I'm not with the ACLU on this, Jeff. But let's not kid ourselves. We are arresting individuals who have broken no law. But they will. The commission of the crime itself is absolute metaphysics. The pre see the future, and they're never wrong. But, it's not but you don't believe that Dick could see the future. Or that he's got his son's medical diagnosis from a pink light called Valus, right? <laughs> Jesus, I feel the show is going off the rails. No, I don't. There are any number of alternative explanations. He read an article he then subconsciously and correctly associated with Christopher's symptoms. Or it was a lucky guess. And by the way, Dick constantly made oracular pronouncements, whether in his books or personal life, and only a few of them could ever be said to have, quote-unquote, come true. Or maybe someone with more medical knowledge mentioned this condition at some point and Dick only recalled it later. Anyway, we're not buying his explanation. But what's important for our purposes is that he thoroughly believed it and it caused him in turn to believe there was a good reason why he should take his 2374 experience seriously enough to completely focus all of his professional efforts and personal interests around it for the remaining eight or so years of his life. What do you mean by refocus his professional efforts and personal interests? Well, I mean that everything he wrote after this event was related directly to it, and at least one of those novels, 
Thales is among the best of his fictional output, wildly, deeply affecting rumination on consciousness, sanity, humankind's relationship to the infinite, the necessity of forgiving oneself, the hope for transcendence. It's amazing. Moreover, the experience led him to re-examine in minute detail every thought and interaction he'd ever had, including an exhaustive, ongoing picking through of his own earlier books to see what they meant in light of his later revelation. In fact, he eventually came to believe that his past books were actually directly influenced by the 1974 event, which occurred long after their publication. More on this later. By far the most important single piece of writing that came out of this experience, though, was what he called his exegesis. When you do the same Google search that we did, you'll see the most common definition for this word is a critical explanation or interpretation of a text, especially of scripture. And since he most of the time saw his 2374 experience as putting him in contact with the divine, that name makes sense. In practice, what's come to be known as the exegesis of Philip K. Dick is at least a couple million words, written on notebooks, single sheets, scraps, any sort of paper that happened to be on hand, and shoved haphazardly into folders only to be painstakingly reconstituted by scholars after his death. It's approximately 9,000 pages of Dick constantly examining and re-examining his own thoughts about what had happened to him and what the fuck it could all possibly mean. Now, admittedly, we're Philip K. Dick fanatics, but even we couldn't be expected to read all of his exegesis. That's insane! But we did read the entirety of the 900 or so pages edited together in the published version by a team fronted by noted novelist Jonathan Lethem. Okay, technically we listened to the audiobook, but we did get through the entire thing. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a goddamn minute. You're saying you didn't read the original Warren report for the JFK episode? And you didn't read the original works of most of the philosophers you covered in the last episode, but you'd read... Well, listened to. Fine. Listen to the entire audiobook of the sci-fi author's kind of sort of unhinged ravings. How long was this audiobook anyways? Like 50-something hours. I'm sorry, what was that number? 52 hours. 52 fucking hours? Yeah, but a lot was on 1.5 speed. Come on, what do you want from me? This is the record of a super smart, visionary dude who's susceptible to both magical thinking and rigorous self-examination, and he's unleashing his unparalleled imagination on the topic of determining what the fuck happened to him during a world-changing event that was essentially all in his head. The book details heroic internal analysis, periodic bouts of strict skepticism, and extended fugues of unexpected philosophical, pseudoscientific, highly conspiratorial mental synthesis. If I could have melted it down in a spoon and injected it directly into my veins, I would have. I'm just a human being, Dana. I can't resist a perfect temptation. Dick's own opinions on what happened to him varied widely and constantly. For example, at certain points, he seems to think of Valus as an extraterrestrial intelligence or some other sort of artificial construct, as detailed in this excerpt from one of his later novels. Emmanuel said, But what is Valus? An artificial satellite that projects a hologram that they take to be reality. Then it's a reality generator. Yes, Elias said. Is the reality genuine? No, I said it's a hologram. It can make them see whatever it wants them to see. Another really intriguing possibility that he entertained was that the Valus experience of 2374 was in fact designed by God to reawaken him to the fact that he was not the person he thought he was, and that the world, even the very year he believed himself to be in, was in fact an illusion.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.